Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Cynthia Thurlow, and Cynthia is a nurse practitioner, an intermittent fasting and nutrition expert, and a two-time TED Talk speaker. In this conversation, we spoke about how she was an ER nurse earlier in her career and how that shaped her experiences. We spoke about her spiritual experience while she was on the brink of death, and we spoke about what it means to be a good coach and a good speaker. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was really cool to listen to and hear someone's perspectives who spent so much time around people and helping people get better and get fitter. And Cynthia's got a lot of wisdom. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you have any thoughts or feedback about these conversations, this one in particular, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. I love your feedback and I look forward to hearing from you. But until then, this is my episode with Cynthia Thurlow. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Cynthia, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I've been excited. I've been looking forward to it. I, I'm always open to connecting with new people and you know, getting a sense of how I can serve their audiences. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to start with you in Baltimore as an ER nurse. Why <laughs> was that such an influential part of your life? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I had another undergraduate degree and had gotten into law school and then decided not to go. And it really started me on a different trajectory. I tell everyone that, you know, getting an animal can change your life. And so when I, you know, adopted my dog, uh, right when I got out of college, I really started to think that I was destined to work in some area of medicine. And so initially I thought maybe I wanted to go to veterinary school and I realized that's probably not a great idea considering I'm super allergic to cats. And so I worked for two years for a fortune 500 company. I hated every single minute of it, but I had to support myself. You know, my parents cut me off, which is what parents should do when you get out of college. Uh, and I was living with my, one of my college sorority sisters and we had literally no money. I mean, at the end of the month, we had just enough money to put gas in our cars. It was a very humbling time in my life. And it also made me really reflect on what would really make me happy, you know, going forward. And so I started taking pre-med classes and, you know, I worked a full-time job, took pre-med classes at night. I think I took two or three classes each semester and really largely had no social life at that point. And so it was on that trajectory that I had a professor who looked at me and said, what are you doing in these classes with all these, you know, by that point, maybe people four or five years younger than me. And I just explained what I was interested in. He said, you should become a nurse practitioner. And I was like, I don't want to be a nurse. I have no desire to be a nurse. Well, that turned out to be the most fortuitous conversation because at the time, this is really at the peak of the HIV AIDS crisis. And uh, I, I got very interested in HIV and AIDS management. I went to work for the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington, D.C. and started looking at what were the best university systems for HIV and AIDS research. And really, you're talking at the time about Johns Hopkins and UCSF 
you know, I'm very much an East coast girl. I knew there was no chance I was going to get on a plane and relocate to San Francisco. And I applied to a few other, you know, very well-regarded universities, got into my first choice. And so I packed up everything I owned and moved to Baltimore. And while in Baltimore, I found out that there was another passion of mine. It wasn't just HIV and AIDS research, which of course the patient population in Baltimore was much different than DC. Um, it was really a, a tremendously eye-opening experience to be in, inter, be in a big inner city and dealing with a lot of the social issues. One of the best educations I could have ever had, to be completely frank. It was really good for this suburban girl who had been a suburban girl her entire life to be in the inner city. I, I learned a lot. And I found that I loved ER medicine. You know, I'm an adrenaline junkie. And to be in a major U.S. city, major inner city with a lot of the social issues that Baltimore has and still has, the drug problems, teen pregnancy, et cetera. For me, it was a baptism by fire. And so I love to tell people (laughs) to this day, I could colorfully write a book just talking about what I saw and dealt with and the patients that I had the distinct honor to be able to care for, for the six years I lived in Baltimore. So I did another undergraduate degree and then did my nurse practitioner program and while I was doing grad school, I was an ER nurse and I loved every minute of it. Again, it was another, like my twenties were just a protracted period of being in school and working towards a goal. And so uh, Baltimore, I, I have a fondness for Baltimore that I will probably never lose. Is there a particular story that encapsulates your six years there? You know, it's a good question. You know, I, I think a lot of the things that I choose to to recall with great joy um, are some of the, the patients because, you know, many of these patients, they're either frequent flyers, meaning they end up in the ER, end up in the hospital frequently. So you get to know them really well. And there was a gentleman, um, and I'm trying to think about how I can describe him without sharing who he was. He was a morbidly obese gentleman who was in his 30s. He was very, very funny. And he was a ladies' man. I mean, he was so large that he had to be weighed in the hospital on a freight scale. And I'm not exaggerating. And he just was larger than life. And I I think about him frequently because you, if, if if you're a very intuitive person, you learn more from your patients than they learn from you. And so for me on every level, he taught me so much about the culture, about how he grew up, about race relations, about political issues. And then on top of that, as a new nurse practitioner, I learned a ton about the health issues that he dealt with. And then, you know, he had this incredibly humorous side, like he always kind of made fun and not in a kind of in a slightly self-deprecating way, but when you are 400 plus pounds and you're shaped like a gumdrop. So imagine like, he's just a very large individual. And it was like everyone in the hospital, when they saw me walking with him, they knew who I was walking with. And, you know, on, on so many levels, like when I think about my years in Baltimore, it's really typified by him. Um, but obviously when you work in the ER, you see a lot of tragedy, a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of child abuse, a lot of you know, just abuse that I, I tell my kids, there's the stories I can share. And then there's stories that I will take to my grave because they're just so disturbing that it takes a lot of work to get beyond what you've seen. Cause it, it's very hard for those of us that grew up in happy, healthy environments to imagine that there are people who do not grow up in environments like that and grow up with abject poverty and drug abuse and sexual abuse and, 
uh, all sorts of different traumas. But when I when I think fondly about my ER days and my uh, first few day few years as a nurse practitioner, I think about this patient. Unfortunately, because of HIPAA, I have to be obscenely careful about how much I disclose. And so there are plenty of people like this individual in Baltimore. So it's not as if I'm pointing a finger at him. But I, I think when when you have the ability to help care for people, um, really one of the, the huge benefits is that you get to have like insights into people's, you know, emotional, physical, psychological growth. And, you know, if you're doing things right, hopefully they're growing and you're growing, you can grow together and they may not even realize what they're providing you with. But I always say it's, it's like that grounding is what allowed me to then move, um, back to where I am now and be able to, you know, view my whole world very differently. Like I tell my kids all the time, everyone needs to live in the inner city, at least for a period of time in your life because you can't appreciate how comfortable you have it in the suburbs if all you know is that you have green grass and everything's very upscale and you know you don't have, ever have to worry about being street smart like i that's one of the things i tell my kids i think my years in baltimore are so much a part of me now that i've always kind of got my i mean there i'm always kind of looking around making sure i know where i am i don't take anything for granted and and i think a lot of people do because they're just so comfortable you know we're a nation that is very comfortable. How do you, you know, you mentioned these stories about that you're going to take to the grave mm -hmm. because they're, they were so shocking to you or, or so disturbing in some way. How do you compartmentalize that when you're going about your day-to-day -day life? So when you're not working, you're not thinking about all those situations. Well, I know uh, there were specific circumstances where they had to bring in grief counselors for the entire nursing and medical staff because it was just so traumatizing. Uh, I think a lot of healthcare providers, and I'm going to speak to nurses right now, but this applies to anyone who works in the healthcare arena, they, uh, they can become emotional eaters. They can become substance abusers. Uh, I think that people have to be very cognizant of the maladaptive ways they deal with feelings that make them uncomfortable. Cause that's really what it comes down to, whether it's horrifying, shocking, disturbing, emotionally heart-wrenching, I mean, or all of the above, if you don't deal with those feelings, they, you can compartmentalize them enough to get through your day. Cause really like as adults, when we're at work, it's like, suck it up, deal with what you have to deal with. And then you go home and you feel like you just fall apart. So I think for many people, they develop maladaptive behaviors um, I know a lot of nurses have emotional eating issues, whether or not it's a byproduct of the stress of work or they that was an issue that was there before. For me, I probably tended to be someone that just needed to have a lot of like downtime. And I, as an introvert, you know, I always say like I'm either on or I'm off. Like when I'm my introverted kind of nature, I just know that I need to like, you know, maybe I read a book, maybe I go to the gym. I mean, I, I just know what I need to do. And then I think it gets to a level for some people, they have to talk to a professional and there's no shame in that. I mean, there've definitely been, I always say I've done therapy throughout my lifetime, but I'm probably even more vocal now saying to people like, it's okay to say you're not okay. Like we're kind of conditioned that we keep our feelings bottled up and that will just come out in other behaviors. And so I, I think for many people, it's really a very personal choice. I think most of us probably buried it because we were all in grad school you know, working really hard to pay our bills and, you know, just get through our twenties. I would say survive our twenties and you know, go out a couple, go out occasionally because we didn't have a lot of free time. 
But I, I think for most people, they have to find mechanisms to blow off steam, um, to do it in a healthy way. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people, you know, through a byproduct of just trying to get through life, they just bury their feelings and it'll just come out in other ways. Why do you think that therapy was stigmatized in the past? I think there's started to be an opening up of that over the past five, 10 years, maybe. But why do you think in the past it wasn't that way? Well, I, I suspect oftentimes because people didn't really understand mental health in general, you know, we, we understand so little about the brain I and mean, we understand quite a bit structurally, anatomically, physiology wise, but I think it's so much less tangible than like, you can open up someone's heart and look at their heart. And yes, you can do brain surgery, but I think for many people, they don't really understand. They don't, they don't think of like a cancer diagnosis, like major depression. They don't think about bipolar disorder in the same way that they think about someone having, um, you know, reflux disease. They don't think about it the same way as someone has terrible arthritis. They don't think about it the way that they would think about, you know, depression. And so I think because it's less tangible per se, that that's why it was poorly misunderstood. Um, I think now psychiatry as a whole has gotten much more savvy. You know, I just interviewed a really amazing, um, She's a psychiatrist at Harvard, but she's really focused on food, like nutritional therapy as, as the first line for treating psych psychiatric illnesses, which gives me hope. I think that on many levels, we've gotten much more savvy understanding the interrelationship between nutrition and neurotransmitters and the impact on the brain. But I think there's also this degree of, of shaming, like people hid the mentally ill. People put them in a sanitarium. I mean, I can't think of a worse name. Uh, it, it, when you look at the mental health industry, it was always this kind of, it's shameful to talk about your feelings. It's shameful to talk about depression. And yet for many people, this is part of their, their lives. And so I, I think with, so there's many pros and cons to how social media in many ways has destigmatized many things. This might be one of the few things I would say, I think is beneficial is that people are getting their voices heard, you know, whether it's through video or um, other modalities on social media. I think it, it provides the general public with more exposure to certain health issues. And in my mind, because I went to a big teaching hospital, I didn't think about anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder as being any different as anything else. You know, at one point I worked at a hospital that was across the street from one of the leading psychiatric institutions in the United States. And so we did a lot of intake for them. So I got to see quite a bit of the kind of range of psychiatric illnesses. And so in the back of my head, I would say, wow, like give me a heart attack any day because the person that's dealing with being manic and really bipolar is really struggling right now. And yet, because people don't understand the behavior, they're, they're, they're like, it's almost as if, you know, 20 plus years ago, if you had a heart attack, people were like, okay, I get that, but I don't get the bipolar behavior because it's less tangible. And so on so many levels, I think, you know, the growing awareness, the growing uh, exposure for people to, um, you know, viewing other people's experiences, I think has allowed for there to be less stigma. But I, but I agree with you. There's a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of things that have improved over the last five to 10 years, but I think it could, we could do an even better job because there are still people that are very ashamed to talk about their diagnosis or what they're struggling with or they're, um, they're fearful of, of judgment and, uh, they're not getting the help that they need. And, and I would be the first person to say that the first step is 
owning your feelings and owning how you feel so that you can get the assistance that you're, that you need. Uh, there's no point in people suffering in silence. There's been so much of that for far too long. Yeah. How could we do a better job of, of making it more inclusive for people who have mental health issues to come forward or to talk about their problems? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to be talking to our kids when they're young so that they understand. So they're processing feelings because it goes back to the same thing. I mean, kids in many ways, not every child, but I think a lot of children uh, grew up in neglectful environments. And so they don't have the foundation to be able to express their feelings, to feel safe, sharing their feelings, to feel comfortable doing that. Um, You know, I certainly live in an area of the country where there's a lot of pressure on kids to live a certain way, be a certain socioeconomic status, go to the right, right college, the right, you know, the right university. And so kids don't want to look like their armor is dented. They want to look flawless and perfect. And so I always say to my kids, like, you're perfectly imperfect as am I. And that's, you know, we're not meant to, to always have all the answers. And so I think it really starts when children are young and allowing the opportunity to express themselves and to do it in a healthy way. I mean, obviously a lot of it's age dependent. Um, I have all boys and I can tell you that they have no problems expressing themselves on any level, which is sometimes to our detriment. I I think Uh, at some points I'm like, okay, time out. I don't need to know all that time out. But I think that people have to feel safe. There, There needs to be opportunities, whether it's with someone's primary care provider, the pediatrician, Um, Mental health professionals may now at least, um, you know, mental health has evolved beyond just psychiatry. You've got psychologists, you've got social workers, you have licensed therapists, all of which collectively fill the need. There just, there aren't enough people going into mental health fields, especially for pediatrics. I mean, I was talking to a colleague the other day and she was saying like, if you wanted to make a gazillion dollars, not really, but if you wanted to be in a very profitable specialty right now, she said, Pediatric psychiatry, they are struggling. They are struggling right now to have sufficient amount of practitioners because a lot of people are retiring. Let's be honest. The pandemic has not done any benefits for healthcare providers. A lot of people have left. My gastroenterologist, who's only in her 50s, just retired. She just said she couldn't handle the, the added stress of all the other things on top of the pandemic. But I think we're losing a lot of healthcare providers um, for a variety of reasons, but not enough people are going into the pediatric field. So I think it starts, you know, it starts with parents, it starts with families, it starts with communication and, you know, creating environments where kids feel comfortable articulating their feelings. Um, And it goes, you know, even to adults, like we may not get the skills as children, but as adults, we can absolutely learn the skills. I always say like, I don't, give up on anyone. I think it's really important for people to, um, to know that we can shift our perspective, shift our mindset, um, change the way we, we view the world at any point during our lives. You just have to, you know, seek the teacher as they say. And I, I always say that I think it's important for us to be lifelong learners. So irrespective of where you are in time and space, um, there are ap- absolutely opportunities to learn and, and to benefit from that. How do you find good teachers? Because in today's day and age, it's so there's so much information out there. There's so many people posing as teachers. Mm-hmm. How do you find a, a good teacher in any particular area you want to improve in? Mm, great question. Um, I think it requires a bit of research, meaning it may be that you dive down 10 different rabbit holes and you 
follow and ascribe to someone that you uh, look up to. It could be someone that's maybe a step ahead of you in the trajectory of where you want to go. It could be someone that's a different gender. I always tell people like, don't get caught up and I'm only going to follow the gender that I am because some of my best teachers have been men. Like I actually was telling someone the other day, one of my best business coaches I've ever had. I just spoke at one of his events in Montana he was a male and it's because he was just straightforward and just told me like it was, which is exactly what I needed. So I think, you know, if you're still in school, you know, whether you're in high school or college or grad school, uh, you know, look to your professors. I'm sure there's probably one that you feel very aligned with someone you may connect with. If you are, you know, working for a company and there's someone, you know, in your area that you just connect with, I I think it, it requires a little bit of introspection on your part because, each one of us might need something different from a mentor. I've always had mentors throughout my lifetime, perhaps unknowingly in some ways. Uh, one of them ended up being uh, recently was someone I interviewed on my podcast two years ago. We connected. I actually brought my son to see her as a clinician. They connected really well. And then she and I developed a friendship beyond that. And she has served as a resource person for me. And uh, you know, just being open-minded, seeing people that are ahead or where you want to go, Like obviously being an entrepreneur, I'm always looking at people I can look up to. They don't necessarily have to be older than me. Uh, They could be younger than me, but they could be farther ahead in their business. And so one of the things I would caution everyone is, uh, you know, it's not an age thing. I learn things from people every day. I have some very young people on my team and I always tell them how much I appreciate them and, and value their input. It is not about age. It is about what can you learn from that person? What can you teach each other? Being open-minded. Like I hate when I hear people that are my own age say things like, oh, I'm too old for that. Or, you know, that doesn't serve me. And I, and I always say like, if I had that mindset, there are so many missed opportunities. Like some of the people I enjoy the most are a lot younger than I am. And that is totally okay. There is something to be learned. So you know, don't be judgmental, be open-minded. If you're younger, like if you're in your twenties and you're looking up to someone who's in their forties, don't be afraid to reach out to them and say, Hey, I would love to connect with you. I'd love to interview you. I'd love to hear more about how you did X. I think one of the the best ways, and certainly you did this, just reaching out and just, you know, I, I think you made a specific compliment about something I had, I had tweeted about, um, you know, I think half the battle is just finding a way to connect. And there's almost always a way to connect with one another. Uh, And then just see from there what develops. I I find that most of those relationships become very organic, meaning they're not forced. It's not like you're saying, I want to go to dinner with you on Friday at five o'clock. No, it's like, let's do a Zoom call. Um, You know, let's catch up and record a podcast. Let's uh, go for a run. I mean, something that is not requiring a lot of effort on either of your part that you can, it's almost like you're trying each other on. It's like, let's see, how does this work? And for me, I'm a big believer in flow. If it's meant to work, it will. I don't like to force anything. I'll give you an example. Uh, Very recently, I have a client I've had for the past year who's absolutely lovely. And I just felt like there was, there was, personally, we get along very well, but, but professionally, I was getting a lot of friction with work that we were doing together. And so I reached out to her and I said, listen, we have two more appointments together. I'm I'm in a position where I'd be happy to let you let you go from your contract, from the rest of the contracted amount, because I just feel like this isn't serving you well, and I don't want to force it. 
And what's interesting is she took about a week to respond and in a very nice way said, you know what? I'm so grateful that you saw that in me. I I had to like take a step back, look at things objectively. And I told her, I said, it is not in my nature to force things. And I, I think for anyone that's listening, if you're trying to um, you know, succeed in connecting with someone, developing a rapport or even like an acquaintanceship and then eventually a mentorship. If it's meant to work, it will just kind of fall into place. And if you're trying to feel like it's, if you're forcing it really in any relationship in your life, then it's probably best to kind of take a step back and just say, you know, is this really serving both of us? Someone who served as a mentor for you, or at least a teacher from afar is Robin O'Brien mm-hmm. from The Unhealthy Truth. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about why that book played such a critical role in your life? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. So I'm like a gigantic, voracious reader. And at the time, uh, my oldest son had a few years before had been diagnosed with life threatening food allergies. And so that kind of sent me into a tailspin. It's almost like you know too much. And then that means then you become fearful. And I'm like, I can't live in fear. This is not healthy for him or for us. And so I just happened to buy her book. I I don't know why I bought her book, but I bought her book, read it. And I was so angry as I was reading the book because she used to be a lobbyist for the, for the, um, the food industry. And as she was unpacking why her daughter had developed food allergies and symptoms and food sensitivities, she got angry too. Uh, And so as I read this book, I thought to myself, more parents need to know this. More people need to be aware of how our you know, food industry has largely been hijacked by big ag and how these companies are, are, are largely spraying toxic chemicals on our food that is making us sick. And so I, I think it took me about two weeks to read the book, not because it's very long, but because I could only read a chapter at a time. And so here I am this, you know, Western medicine trained nurse practitioner, adrenaline junkie. And I started to become increasingly disillusioned with this kind of traditional, you have a symptom. I write a prescription kind of mindset. Let me be clear. We need Western medicine. That's, you know, we're the best of the best at emergencies, urgencies, surgery, all those things. We do a crappy job with prevention and chronic disease management, and I will die on that sword forever. And so I slowly started to kind of turn, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure what that was going to look like, but, you know, I started a doctoral program, then I did a wellness coaching program, and then I kind of fell into this nutrition, functional nutrition program. And that's, that's what got me started. So I always credit Robin O'Brien. In fact, I'm trying to get her on the podcast. We've been communicating back and forth. I've been trying to get her on the podcast because I really genuinely want to share her message, but also just from a place of complete gratitude, because if I had not read her book, I would not have taken that that turn. You know, we always talk the path less taken. And I definitely throughout my lifetime did not necessarily ascribe or do what people expected of me. I did something different. It all worked out in the end. Being an entrepreneur is the same way. But for me, it was that book. Reading that book gave me the confidence slash anger, irritation, enough for me to pivot, you know, to to really say to, to say to people. I feel like it all starts with food. We're not focusing on food and food is what is driving all these metabolic issues, diabetes, et cetera. And instead we want to focus on symptoms and we're missing the point. Like if we don't start with what food we choose to put in our bodies, we are missing the whole point of all of this. What foods do you recommend eating or what foods do Robin O'Brien recommend from the unhealthy truth? 
Um, she didn't really necessarily talk as much about the, the things she recommended, but generally speaking, I am an advocate of a protein focused diet, animal-based protein, um, the best that your budget can afford. I talk a lot about healthy fats. So things like olive oil, um, I, I think a lot about butter, you know, obviously this is the antithesis of what we used to tell patients and then carbohydrates, if you've earned them. And most Americans eat far too many carbohydrates. I'm not anti-carb, but I would much rather people have non-starchy vegetables that are carbohydrates and low glycemic berries than be eating French fries and, um, you know, rice and, you know, like cupcakes. I mean, let's be real. We, we should call a spade a spade. And a lot of what people eat that's food is really like dessert. So, you know, that's what I would say completely differentiates me from a lot of my peers is that I'm very, very focused on food quality. Uh, you know, as, as I always say, the best your budget can afford in my house, we eat a lot of meat. Um, I have very, very healthy children who I have my oldest right now is 5'10 with size 12 feet and he's still growing, which is unbelievable. Uh, and then my other son is now taller than me too, but you know, they're, they're, they're competitive athletes. My husband, you know, does jujitsu. We are a very active family and we eat a lot of protein and then, you know, the healthy fats piece. And then obviously with teenage boys, they can largely eat anything that they want, uh, they ate a lot of, I, I would say by their own admission, you know, rice and pasta and things like that, which I don't eat anymore, um, and haven't for a long time. So I think it's really dependent on the individual life stage. Someone is at obviously a 25 year old young man can eat very differently than a 50 year old man can. Um, and that's neither good nor bad. It's just, it is, it is what it is. You're at the point in your lives where in your twenties, where you're largely, um, protected from, a lot of the challenges that can impact people um, at an older age doesn't mean that it will. I always say that, you know, it's great to be an outlier. I'd never realized I was one, but to answer your question, a lot of the, the focus that I do, whether it's on social media or with clients is really talking about food quality, meaning if you can afford it, get pastured, wild-caught meat and fish, um, you know, organic, uh, you know, pastured eggs. Now, obviously, I always say it's good, better, best. Cause if you go out to dinner or you're at a celebration, it's good, better, best. You do the best with what you have at the moment and you don't stress about it. Yeah. You mentioned that you're an outlier. How do you, how would you describe yourself as an outlier? Hmm. Well, um, I would say first and foremost, when I comparatively look at most women that are in their forties, I sleep well, I have a lot of energy. I can lift heavy things in the gym. I, uh, maintain my weight. Uh, I am metabolically flexible. I eat twice a day. So just, just in those, you know, kind of qualifiers alone, that puts me in a very small percentage of people. Uh, I think that it, and it's not a judgment. I just don't think we give men and women the proper information. And is it any surprise that people are confused? So what I find with most men or women in middle age is that they aren't the weight they want to be. They sleep really poorly. They don't have any energy. They're full of brain fog. Um, you know, their, their labs, like the labs that they do through their healthcare providers office are all abysmal. They drink too much. Uh, hopefully they don't smoke. 
uh, you know, they, they probably don't exercise or if they do, they're doing the wrong types. Like the chronic cardio is generally what I'm speaking to. Movement is great. Like I say, if you walk every day, that's awesome, but you got to lift heavy things and you probably need to do some stretching. But I think those things alone impact so many people in such a negative way. So I say people that are in their forties are acting like my grandparents probably did in their seventies because their quality of life is really just so poor. And then add in the fact that most people are eating highly processed foods that are hyper palatable, meaning um, it's very hard to just eat one, you know, the old adage, whether it's about Cheetos or Doritos, I can't recall, but it's, it's impossible to eat just one. Well, the food scientists make it that way. So the less processed foods you eat, the less addicted you will be to food. Ergo, you will probably not have a weight problem. And so, you know, it's just, it's the, the cumulative net impact of all those, those symptoms that I just described that are a source of frustration. And it really makes me very sad when I talk to people who are like, oh my God, what do you do? And, and I just say, well, I probably have lived this lifestyle for a long time. So for me, I don't necessarily think about every little nuance, but I would say that I've always been someone, and maybe that's the healthcare provider in me. Like I can be very regimented because in healthcare and in medicine, there's certain things you just have to do a certain way that, that, that aligns with my personality. I'm not a rebel. I tend to be someone who can be very organized and efficient, but I recognize like in my lifestyle, like the way that my husband and my kids and I all live um, we are very happy going to bed at, uh, by a certain time. We are happy getting up in the morning and exercising. We are happy making the bulk of our food at home. That's not a hardship to us, but to other people who live very differently, that might be very challenging to do. And so a lot of the work I do is kind of showing people how to make small changes that will have big impact. But I, I would agree that uh, most people struggle with a lot of the things that I just referred to. I, I went to my high school reunion a couple of years ago, and I can assure you that I, I was like, wow, um, it, Mar- we're all the same age and we all look very, very different. And it is not a, it is not a female male thing. It is not a, you know, an ethnicity issue. It is a lifestyle piece that is impacting people in really profound ways. So how do we get people from living that way? to more living like you, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, they have to want to change. That's the, that's the most important thing. They have to want to change because if they don't want to change, you could do all the education interventions, et cetera. They're not ready for the message. So when I was a uh, hundred years ago, when I was in grad school, um, there was this Prochaska and Deke Clemente. They talk about this trans theoretical model of change. And so I reflect on that quite a bit. And, and what I essentially just said is, if someone's not ready, if they're just thinking about change, they're not ready to make change. You can't shove them. You can't make them ready. So someone has to be ready for the message. They have to be ready to take action. So a lot of it's acknowledging like where someone is on that change, you know, change continuum. And you can go back and backwards and forwards quite a bit. I used to always say there are people who will come to me who want to pay me money to work with them, but they aren't ready to do the work. And I used to take that so personally. So when someone is ready it has to be small, sustainable changes. So you can't, and this is a mistake I, I made when I was a new nurse practitioner. And certainly as a new entrepreneur, you get people like a hundred things they need to change all at once. And they're like, I don't even know where to start. So small, sustainable changes. It could be as simple as I'm going to go to bed 30 minutes earlier every night, or I'm going to put blue blockers on if I'm going to sit up and watch the game, or I'm going to be on my tablet or in front of my computer, because we know the net, net impact of blunting the, um, 
blue light from your electronics and its impact on melatonin, which is this hormone in the brain. Thinking about things like I'm going to cut out snacking. Now, most, I think the ad, the latest statistic I listened to is that uh, the average American consumes a sugar sweetened beverage or food 16 to 17 times a day. Now, I don't know how you would get anything else done if you if you did that all day long, but apparently that appears to be the the norm for a lot of people. And I, I say to people all the time that, you know, just removing snacking, I'm not even talking about intermittent fasting, just not snacking, see how you feel. And oftentimes people feel a hundred percent better. Uh, you know, these are like small, simple things that people can do, or if someone's not physically active, encouraging them to walk for five minutes a day. I mean, everyone has five minutes. I don't care who you are, where you live. Everyone has five minutes a day and then kind of, you know, slowly, increasing it from there. The problem that most people do is they try to do too many things too quickly, or they feel deprived and then they can't sustain the changes. And I remind them that lifestyle changes are, are designed ideally to be things you can do throughout your lifetime. So if it's too restrictive, like there's something called the whole 30, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but it's no gluten, no grains, no dairy, no soy, no alcohol for 30 days. And that is probably the longest the average person can do. And it is totally fine after 30 days to say, okay, I'm going to re I'm going to reinstitute dairy and see how I feel. or I'm going to reinstitute grains and see how I feel. But I'll tell you, people will struggle for those 30 days, but because they know there's an end point, they're like, okay, let's, you know, let's take out what doesn't serve me. Let's keep what does. Maybe I find out that not drinking alcohol is a good thing for me, or maybe I tolerate a little bit of dairy, but not much. And so we don't know until we challenge ourselves a little bit to even determine what is uh, something that we can we can kind of agree to long term or even on the short term. So that's that's usually a good place to start. Small sustainable changes so that you can uh, maintain them over time, and then as you uh, do really well, you can like add on instead of five minutes of walking becomes ten. Instead of snacking, maybe you you fast for fourteen hours a day, which really isn't it blows people's minds to think they don't eat for 14 hours, but it really, if you eat dinner at six and eat breakfast at eight, you've already gone 14 hours. So it's really not so insurmountable, or maybe someone's going to say, I'm going to eat more green vegetables. Hey, that's fantastic. That's still a win. You mentioned the no alcohol piece. And I was reading a tweet from you that said you were made fun of most Mm -hmm. of your adult life for not drinking alcohol. And that was so crazy to me. Why do you think that not drinking alcohol made other people so they they were so confused by it or wanted to make fun of you for it. Yeah. Well, I, I think, so I, I think there's, there's a couple fold issue. I think growing up with an alcoholic parent definitely laid a pretty indelible impression on me. That's number one. And oftentimes when people make fun of someone because they choose like a lifestyle choice shift, it's because it triggers something within them. Like I always say, like, I don't take ownership of other people's triggers. Like that's on them. And I, I fully understand that. I have a couple of family members who it becomes like still to this day, I'm in my forties and I still have people that, uh, like to make it an issue that I choose not to drink alcohol. And I just say, listen, I don't feel good. I get hot flashes. I don't sleep well. I'm like, those are three things that are non-negotiables for me. Uh, and for anyone that's listening, you might have completely other different reasons why maybe you don't act like yourself. Maybe you say things you don't mean to say, maybe you say hurtful things. Maybe you make poor choices. Like maybe you end up in bed with someone that you're like, oh, I was beer goggling. This is not a good thing. Um, there can be a lot of different reasons. So I I think it really speaks to, we have a, a profound drinking culture in the United States, um, you know, 
this somewhat kind of puritanicalism about, you know, certain things are acceptable, other things are not. There is a big drinking culture within the mom community. I mean, there was a neighborhood I lived in until um, last September, and uh, there were a group of moms that were like just unbelievable drinkers. Like, there was no judgment on my part, but I was like, I couldn't function like that. I wouldn't want to be like, I wouldn't want to be behaving like that, looking like that. No, thanks. Um, I can think of a hundred other things I'd like to consume calorie wise than all that alcohol, but we have this drinking culture. It's okay for mommy to drink too much. It's okay for someone to get sloppy drunk in their twenties, thirties or forties or beyond. And, you know, alcohol is still technically a drug. I, I don't think people think about it that way. And I'm by no means a teetotaler and I'm not passing judgment on anybody. But I think as a healthcare provider, as a human being, as the adult child of an alcoholic, I definitely kind of view the world a little differently than a lot of other people. I can tell you that I definitely got made fun of a lot in college. I mean, it was, it got to the point where I I had to have some pretty serious conversations with people to say like, I've seen out of control drinking growing up. I don't need to see it like in my friends or in people that I hang out with. And if you can't respect that, then that's your issue. Um, But yeah, it has definitely been a a pretty consistent theme throughout my adulthood. And, you know, I'm I'm actually grateful that my parents uh, instilled in me a, a lot of confidence that I would stand up for myself and just say, this doesn't serve me. And I felt comfortable doing that. I didn't feel as much pressure as I think a lot of my peers did to get ridiculously sloppy drunk. I hold my breath when I think about when my kids go off to college and try to talk to them about that. Like you do not have to do things that make you uncomfortable. Like there's a difference between I'm taking organic chemistry and this is really intellectually rigorous being a challenge versus I'm pledging a fraternity and someone wants me to drink uh, a whole bottle of grain alcohol. Like that's very different. Um, at least in, in this mom's opinion. So yeah, I, I think there's definitely this drinking culture that uh, people feel an inordinate amount of pressure to kind of go along with what everyone else is doing. And, and even at my age, like, I don't think it's just a byproduct of teens and 20 somethings. It is definitely something I've seen throughout my lifetime and it's not getting any better. Like, I don't think it's any less pressure laden than what I saw even when I was in college years ago. You mentioned having difficult conversations. You had to have difficult conversations with your friends and mm-hmm. who knows, you might be having difficult conversation with your children when they go mm-hmm. off to college. How do you approach a difficult conversation to make the most out of it for both people? Well, I, I think you have to come to it with the best of intentions and, and be very clear about what you are trying to communicate because when people get defensive, they're not going to hear the message. And so uh, my, my hope and my intention, it always comes from a place of love. And, uh, you know, I, I know that I've had conversations where I've just had to say, listen, I'm not, I'm not comfortable having this conversation, but it needs to be had. And I think the best way to do it, and this is where I'm probably more like a guy. I think the best way to do it is just to say it, like eat the frog, just do it and get it over with. And, and nine times out of 10, it's not nearly as uncomfortable as you think it will be. But I think just kind of laying the groundwork and saying, I just want to have an open, honest conversation. I want to make sure we're on the same page. I want you to understand where I'm coming from. I love and appreciate you. Uh, sometimes I've come to find out that when people are like ready for, to hear that message or they're, they, you, they understand you're coming from a place of love, you're not coming from a place of judgment, you're not coming from a place of um, you know, making trying to create the dynamic that people feel less than. Even with my kids, I'm I'm constantly amazed having teenagers 
that when I start having those conversations and I'll say to my husband, like after the fact, okay, well that went well, or, oh, that didn't go well. I won't do that again. But I think you just, you have to be very clear about where your intentions start from and that you want this to be open and honest. And you recognize this might be uncomfortable. This may make your kid cringe or maybe your loved one doesn't really want to hear it. Uh, they, you know, they don't want to take accountability. And sometimes I just have to say, you know, this is not about you. This is about me airing, you know, my concerns coming from a place of love, wanting to communicate a concern that I, that I'm seeing or, you know, unacceptable behavior or, um, concerning behavior. And so I I find when you come from that place and then also being pretty conscientious about timing, you know, sometimes when we want to have those difficult conversations, we just want to get them over with. It's like, let me just get it over with. I'm going to vomit all over someone. And then I'm done. I I'm, I don't have anything else to do with this. Uh, I, I come to find out it needs to be when everyone's like calm and mellow, we're not rushing. Um, I don't want to be distracted. I don't want the dog barking. Uh, but I, I think all of those things can, can definitely ensure that uh, you have a productive conversation. It may not be the outcome you want, uh, but certainly you, you can walk away knowing that you uh, entered into the conversation with good intentions. Mm, I like that. So kind of switching gears here, I want to talk about the spiritual experience you had when you were on the brink of death. And that sounds <laughs> that sounds real, but from how you described it, it, mm. it seemed powerful. And I'd love for you to share the story here. Yeah. So in 2019, for anyone who is not familiar with the story, I came back from a business trip with my husband and thought I had food poisoning. And it turns out uh, I had a ruptured appendix and a slew of complications. I'd never been sick a day in my life and spent 13 days in the hospital, almost died. And uh, about day five of the hospitalization. And, and I was aware enough at that point how sick I was because my surgeon had, I mean, there were so many specialists seeing me, they weren't able to figure out why I wasn't like by that point I should have been getting better and I wasn't. And so, uh, it was like a a cold snowy day in February. And it just so happened that the hospital room I was in, I could watch the snowfall. And by this point I hadn't eaten in six days and I don't care who the individual is. If you're that sick and you haven't eaten, um, it, it impacts you mentally. And, you know, I was vomiting, I had tubes all over the place. It was just unpleasant. Um, Certainly being a healthcare provider was a blessing slash curse because I was very aware of how sick I was. And I definitely felt in this moment, looking outside, seeing the snow, that there was this spiritual entity that essentially came to me and, and gave me the opportunity. You know, you're either going to have one or two outcomes. You're either going to live or not. And what do you choose? And, you know, at that time, my boys were 13 and 11. They obviously, you know, very much needed me. I wanted to be home with my husband. I had um, a business commitment that was only like a couple weeks, maybe a month away. And in my mind, I was like, I'm, I'm way too young to die. I mean, like I've still got fighting me. And so ironically that night they were able to kind of handle my situation from a different angle. And like two or three days later, I started getting better um, enough that they were then hopeful I was actually going to leave the hospital. But uh, it's amazing how sick an appendix can be. But for me, it left a very strong impression. I, I was very clear that I was going to get out of the hospital. 
I was going to, you know, get home to my family. And then I was going to do this talk. And uh, the talk was to make sure I could prove to my kids, my brain still worked. And, um, you know, the rest is really history about that, that talk in particular, but the point of what I'm, why I think this is such a like kind of profound thing to go through is that I took my health for granted. I'd always been super healthy. Probably if I had not taken as good of my good of care of myself, I may not have made it through. In fact, you know, I, I went home, was discharged home, had my appendix out six weeks later after I had done this talk. So I went and did this talk with a ruptured appendix, which was probably a first. And I remember my surgeon and I cried um, at my post-op visit because she said, if you had been anyone else, you would have died. And so, you know, to, to have never really been faced with your own, um, mortality is really, uh, really, really humbling. And I say this, like nothing scares me. Like I tell people, not that I was ever a fearful person before, not by nature, but now it's kind of like, I want to live big. Like, you know, my husband and I are taking an incredible trip in September and, I remember saying to the kids, I was like, I just don't believe in holding back now. Like after that experience, it's like, if my life had gone poof and that was it, had I done all the things I wanted to do? And the answer was no. So, you know, I think from that perspective, anyone, if you go through a tough time, you go through a serious illness, I I think you're given options, you're given choices. And I definitely chose to live. And, you know, the, the other side of that is that if I was choosing to live, then I was going to live even more passionately, even more deliberately than I had before. And so I feel very blessed because a lot of people go through their whole lifetime and they never go through a hardship like that. And I always say, you know, the universe takes and the universe gives. And so the universe, you know, gave me a pretty rocky month of my life. And then I had all these blessings that came after that second talk. So uh, life works in funny ways. And, you know, who knows, I might not have been connected with you or any of the other amazing podcasts I've been on over the last two years, had it not been for that, that experience. So I always sit in gratitude. What advice would you give for someone who's thrust in the middle of a a situation they didn't control? And it's a hardship that now they're facing for the first time in their life. Yeah. Stay focused on, um, stay focused on what's most important. I always say, you know, your key priorities, my key priorities are my family, you know, getting home to those two boys, getting home to my husband, um, you know, getting back to, to committing that, to do this talk, the, um, the people that were leading the talk thought I was nuts, but, it, but I think you have to really focus on what's most important to you because what will get you through a really tough time are the people that you care about, whether it's your significant other, your best friend, your parents, your siblings, your dog. I mean, I love my dogs. Um, couldn't wait to get home to my dogs. And so, you know, we, we live with purpose, but we also live with intention. And so I think you really have to dig deep. Um, I'm just grateful that I, I recognized, even though I was as sick as I was, I was able to say, this sucks. It could be worse. I've seen patients deal with more. Um, I'm not going to complain because it could be so much worse. And so I always remind myself when it sucks, you know, when you really get down to it, yeah, it sucks, but there are a hundred people out there. have got it way worse than you do. And, you know, I'm sitting here in a, uh, a heated, uh, I almost said hotel, you know, I'm in a heated, uh, clean environment. They're feeding me nutrition through an IV. Uh, I have five specialists taking care of me. I have somewhat mediocre nursing care, which is a whole other story. Uh, I have a lot of loved ones who are reaching out and, you know, what more can you ask for? What's it like when you've spent so much time 
caring for other people. And now you have a team that's caring for you. Very humbling. I mean, you know, way too much. I mean, I, I was probably a gigantic pain in the ass in some ways with the nurses, not the docs. Actually, the doctors were great. Um, I had mediocre, like I either had great nurses or horrible nurses and there was nothing in between. In fact, I ran into one of the nurses that was not so great in target. And it triggered me in such a bad way. Like I saw her and I instantly started to cry. Cause I recall thinking she was so incompetent. And let me be clear. Like I'm a nurse. My standards are ridiculously high. This was just people who probably should like do something else with their lives. Cause they just don't have that compassionate edge or bone. Um, it's really hard uh, because my brain never really shut off. So I was able to recognize, like, I knew enough to know I needed to go to the emergency room because the pain I had was way out of proportion to what it should have been. Uh, I knew they weren't taking me seriously when I got to the ER. And then they only started taking me seriously when they got my labs back. Cause I couldn't, I was in so much pain. I couldn't sit. I was just pacing. Um, I, I knew that I needed to be my own best advocate because they initially wanted to take me right to surgery. And I begged them not to, cause I didn't want to have my colon removed. Cause if I had my colon removed, I'd be wearing a bag outside my body for the rest of my life. So it's a blessing and a curse. I knew a lot. Um, obviously I'd never personally dealt with a surgical emergency in my own body. So that was very different, but you almost get dissociated from your body because it's like, everyone's talking about the body and you're like, I'm in it and everything they're doing hurts. You know, I had so many procedures in the hospital. I had drains put in, I had abscesses, I had obstructions. I mean, I had all these, you know, I, this, you know, inflamed this inflamed that there were so many things that were wrong with me that you almost dissociate from your body because you can't believe you're in the situation. It's like, is this really happening? So I think it's twofold. I think most healthcare providers are control freaks because they're used to being in control and you have to surrender. There was a lot of surrendering because if I wanted to control my environment, I wouldn't have been able to heal. And so when I had really, really good nursing care, I just was so very grateful that people were so kind and so compassionate and so good at what they did. And so I happened to have like two women. Um, they were generally night nurses, but I, I had the two of them. They, they've since become women. I stay in touch with over social media. Uh, and even the interventional radiology nurses were fantastic, but uh, just, you know, sit in gratitude, but yeah, it's very hard as someone that likes to be in control to surrender so if you're in a situation that you cannot control, sometimes you have to let go and surrender. Because if I had not done that, I would not have healed. I, I'm completely convinced I would not have healed the way I did if I stayed like so wanting to be in control of everything. What separates a mediocre nurse from an excellent nurse? Oh, oh, um, on so many levels, intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, aptitude, the desire to continue learning, being compassionate, being caring, being loving, uh, you know, even as an ER nurse, I was all of those things, but a constant strive for excellence. And unfortunately, I think healthcare has changed so much over the last 20 plus years that a lot of really good people are burned out. And so I don't want the message to be anti-nurse or anti, you know, going into healthcare. It's just, healthcare has changed so much that most, if not all people are working longer hours, working harder, less resources, worse pay. And it's a hard job. I don't care, you know, 
where you work as a nurse, it is a hard job. You see things that are upsetting. You have to go home to your family. You know, certainly with the pandemic, you had a lot of people who are worried about all healthcare providers worried about bringing things home to their families, getting their family members sick. So I think what makes a nurse a good nurse is intellectual curiosity, a desire for excellence, um, you know, being compassionate and caring. And then, you know, knowing what you don't know, like that was one thing that freaked me out when I was a new nurse. And certainly as a new nurse practitioner was, what am I going to do if I don't know the answer? And so all my preceptors used to always say, we're never going to be worried about you because you're going to know when you don't know. And it's enough to say like something weird's going on with this patient. I don't know what it is, but something's not right. And that kind of sense of foreboding or that sixth sense, or, you know, the thing that would make your hair, you know, hair stand up on your neck or on the back of your arms, pay attention to that. Like I, there's something called an impending sense of doom. And so years ago when I was an ER nurse, sometimes patients would come in and they didn't look all that sick. And they would say, I have a feeling I'm going to die. And I was always taught if someone says that to you, take it very seriously. And I'll be damned if that patient didn't circle the drain and something horrible would happen. And so I had that sense of feeling when I went to the ER that first night. And I remember telling my husband, if they don't figure out what's going on with me, I'm going to die. There's no question. And I'm not a dramatic person by nature at all. And so I I think it comes down to like, as an individual, just really trusting your intuition, trusting how you feel, um, you know, irrespective of whether or not you're a healthcare provider or not, you know, that, that kind of inner sense of, you know, letting, you know, something's not quite right, you know, paying attention to that irrespective of where you work or what kind of field you work in or what you do on social media or not. Uh, I think it's really critically important to listen to that inner voice because it has generally not guided me poorly throughout my lifetime. How do you get better at improving your own intuition? Hmm. I think it's a practice like anything, uh, you know, like most things that it's helpful if you tune out the noise. Like I, I think most people are not comfortable with their thoughts. You know, they, they have to be constantly distracted, whether it's with a podcast or with, um, uh, something they're streaming on their device or music. It's like, they can't just be quiet and listen to their own thoughts. And so, uh, meditation's really good at this. I, I think meditation is one of those gifts you give yourself. You know, initially people are like, I can't quiet my mind. I can't do it. Well, it does, I'm not saying go meditate for the first time for 30 minutes, but you can meditate for three minutes or five minutes or one minute. Uh, I, I think being very attuned to your body, I know for myself, I mentioned earlier that if I have to feel like I have to force something, it's oftentimes a sign that it's not right. And so for me, when anytime something doesn't work kind of effortlessly, I'm like, step back, let's reevaluate what's going on. So I think some of that comes with maturity and maturity isn't necessarily age related. I think there are some very wise young people that I know. I, I think that uh, you just have to tune out the distractions to pay attention. And that is what a lot of people are lacking. We numb ourselves with food. We numb ourselves with social media. We numb ourselves with uh, electronics instead of paying attention. Like this is funny and relevant. Um, my car is getting serviced right now. And so when I drove over, I was like, oh, I just need new tires and oil change. Just so I'll be there for an hour or two. So I brought a physical book because sometimes I am old school and I will do that. 
And the guy behind the counter was like, I, I so rarely see people in here with physical books anymore. I think that's great. And I said, I try very hard. I'm very intentional. I always have a book when I'm in my car. I always try very hard to make sure that I am not on my phone all the time because it, it's very easy to just be distracted and not be present. And even more so because I have children, I'm actually grateful that smartphones weren't really a thing when they were younger more so for me, because how many parents do you see interacting with their children and they're like on their phones and their kids are like running around and I have boys and boys just tend to be daredevils and they jump off of things. They do all sorts of craziness. And I'm like, my kids did plenty of ER visits way before smartphones, before I was ever distracted with a smartphone. So I sit in gratitude that they're of the age that, you know, that kind of preceded uh, or actually came after them the advent of a, of a true smartphone. So I, I think you, you really have to lead with intentionality and you have to be less distracted in order to pay attention to that inner voice. Mm. You mentioned how to question if it doesn't come effortlessly, something doesn't come effortlessly, but so much of life, like the meditation or lifting weights, lifting heavy weights probably doesn't come effortlessly to someone at first. How do you listen to that inner voice while still doing difficult things if it's necessary? Well, I think there's, there's always a period of time when you're doing something new that it's going to be harder mm -hmm. than it will be eventually when it becomes, um, you don't have to think about every little thing that you need to do. Like when I'm going to, when I'm going to do heavy lifting, I have to have these things with me and I have to think about safety and this and that, and then it becomes more intuitive. So that is very different than, um, than what I'm thinking about, for example, meditation. And for me personally, sometimes when I don't want to do something, it's because I need to do it. So I will force myself to do it. Meaning I'm not talking about eating like a bunch of like, I don't know, hostess fruit pies. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying when I don't want to meditate, it's oftentimes the time that I need to meditate the most. And so I'll just tell myself, you just need to do five minutes. Anyone can do five minutes. Um, no, it sucks. I don't want to deadlift today, but today is my deadlift day. And I'm going to do at least five reps. No, I don't feel like getting up at five 30 in the morning because I just don't want to wake up that early, but I'm going to get up at five 30 this morning because I know that once I get to the gym or once I get out for my run, or once I start doing yoga or whatever it is, I'm going to feel better. And I always say like, there's never a day I regret working out ever. There are days when I don't feel like I want to work out and I will say, okay, well, if we're not going to go lift, then we're going to go walk. If we're not going, so I always say, we're going to move our body in some way or another. It might just be walking Hills in my neighborhood and that's okay, but we have to push our, like we're too comfortable as a culture. We are way too comfortable. We don't move our bodies enough. We don't eat real food. Um, we, engage in far too much social media, electronics, et cetera. And so if you want to get back to what I consider to be a more uh, aligned ancestral health pattern, you have to do what most people are not doing. And that means you have to um, be a little more disciplined and you have to be a little bit more purposeful. And it doesn't mean you force yourself to do things that make you miserable. It's just you have to try new things. Like anytime you first start doing new things, you are going to have a, like, there's always going to be an, you know, a point to which you kind of go, okay, this sucks the first 10 times, but then the 11th time it isn't so bad. And like, I tell my kids, listen, no one loves doing algebra. No one loves doing geometry. 
but you have to get from point A to point B. And this is part of that trajectory. And so this is just what we do. It's called suck it up buttercup, um, which is kind of one of my resounding kind of mantras in my house. I'm like, yeah, we all do things we don't like to do. That's life. You know, that's, that's just part of life. So I think, you know, when someone's doing something new and they feel like it's cumbersome and it's kind of a pain in the butt, it's like, you know, commit to doing five minutes, five reps, um, you know, eat a quarter cup of green vegetables, even if you hate vegetables. I mean, there's, there's always ways to do it, but maybe just don't do it so intensely. Like, I think that's the other problem is people go to extremes and then they can't sustain it. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go run 10 miles and you haven't run half a mile. How are you going to do that? Um, or the people that are like, I'm going to do this power lift in the gym. And I'm like, if you haven't, if you haven't started with doing the basics properly, you're going to end up hurting yourself. And so much to that point, I think, you know, we have to be reasonable in our intention, like what is reasonable to make it sustainable. And maybe that you meditate five days a week, maybe they meditate three days a week. Um, you know, it's not that you don't have time. You just don't make the time. What are the the non-negotiables for you personally on any given day? Okay. Um, sleep. So seven, eight hours of high quality sleep is non-negotiable. Exercise is non-negotiable. Um, intermittent fasting is non-negotiable. Um, you know, I genuinely like really prefer eating at home. Like, you know, days when we kind of build it into our week, like, yes, we're getting ready to move out of the area. So there's a lot of like dinners and celebrations over the next week. And we know how to kind of acquiesce around that, you know, hydration, electrolytes, non-negotiable, um, you know, connecting with my family members every day, non-negotiable, uh, making sure that I connect with my dogs every day, non-negotiable planning, you know, family vacations, non-negotiable. Now that might be very different. Oh, the other thing is, you know, personal professional development is a non-negotiable before I got on with you. I'm in the midst of a, um, like a toxins class series that I'm taking. And so I, I can't do it all at once, which is what I'd love to do, but I hack off. It's like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's like, okay, every day, even if it's 15 minutes, okay, 15 minutes, I'm going to devote to doing this or reading a book, um, you know, more for business development. So I, I think on many levels, if you ask 10 people, they might all have very different answers, but most of what I talk about, it revolves around sleep and, um, the nutrition piece, fasting, sleep, or sorry, sleep again, exercise, and then just connecting with other people. Because as an introvert, I don't have the same need to be constantly connected to people that like my 13 year old does. He's an extrovert. And so when he lives in a house with introverts, we have to be sensitive to that. And sometimes that even means like reevaluating things that we're doing to make sure that his needs are being met as well. How do you think about some of these things I'm sure you've been doing for so many years now, and now you're teaching them to people who are discovering them for the first time. How do you think about that dichotomy and, and teaching something that's obvious to you to something that to someone that it's not obvious to? Yeah. Well, it's just acknowledging we're all in a different trajectory. So obviously when I started intermittent fasting or prioritizing sleep or started, you know, exercising, you know, on a daily basis, uh, there was a lot, there was this, you know, strong part of, um, the educational process, like the journey where you're steep learning curve, like you're learning a lot and then you kind of coast for a while and then you go up again. And so it's, the acknowledgement that you never stop learning. I'm, I mean, I'm constantly learning about every single thing I talked about. I'm always tweaking and adjusting and learning things, trying new techniques. 
And just acknowledging that depending on where people are in their learning journey, they may be at like the bare bone basics. Like they just heard about, for example, intermittent fasting and they know nothing about it. They think it's starvation. And so trying to explain to them, that's not what it is and try to give them basic information so that they can decide, Hmm, maybe I want to learn a little bit more about that or no, I'm I'm not ready for that. I want to have my six mini meals and three snacks a day and be happy with that. What's a four two one fast? Speaking about intermittent fasting, um, it's a more advanced technique, and so it's four days of your normal, you know, fasting feeding window, which could be you know sixteen twenty hours of fasting, and then um, an associated feeding window in between that. Usually refers the four two one. The two is two twenty four hour fasts a week, and then one feast day. And feast day is not a pig out day; it just means you have like a twelve hour eating window, and that strategy tends to be particularly beneficial for uh, people who've hit a plateau or people that just really need to shake things up. Um, a 24-hour fast is a great way to kind of ramp up some of the benefits from fasting, but it's not nearly as scary as longer fasts. And so I find for a lot of people, they they like the amount of digestive rest they get with a longer fast. Like they don't feel quite so um, overwhelmed than if they were trying to do a two or a three day fast, which a lot of that's mental. I always tell people, I'm like, it's so much of fasting is mental. Well, you know it because you've done it for six days without even wanting to. So yeah, totally. So Cynthia, this has been so much fun before we go to a close. I'd like to ask you what if, if you're talking to someone who's 22 years old and you want them to pursue the highest version of their own life, what advice would you have for that person? Great question. I think that you really have to get to know yourself first. I don't know if I knew who I was at 22. You know, I can look back and retrospectively say, oh, I can see where things were falling into place. But I would focus on one thing at a time. I wouldn't take away from like our conversation and say, I have to do all the things. I would pick one area, whether it's mental, spiritual, physical health that you want to improve and focus on one thing at a time so that you can really um, enjoy the benefits and to enjoy the process as opposed to trying to change a lot of things all at once. And at 22, I think on so many levels, it's such a beautiful time in your life because the world truly, there are so many things that you're capable of doing and seeing and I would encourage you to be curious and to, um, you know, dive down every rabbit hole, if you will, of things that you are interested in and don't be afraid to live a little bit differently. Like I certainly throughout my lifetime didn't, you know, I didn't go to law school. I didn't, you know, stay in, you know, medicine. I mean, I I've constantly, like when I've gotten to a point where I feel like I'm no longer growing, that I need to shift. And so don't be afraid to shift. Even if your family thinks you're crazy and your friends kind of go, okay, well, you know, sure. I'll be supportive of that. Follow your path. Don't do what your friends are doing just because they're doing it. Most of my friends got married a lot earlier than I did, had kids earlier than I did either did go to grad school, but did it earlier or went or never went or, or doing it now as they're getting, you know, later into their forties. And so we're all on our own path and, you know, just be true to you and focus on one thing at a time, like excel at one thing before you add in something else. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like it's, you know, you're in like a kid in a candy store and you just see so many options. I would focus on laser focus on one thing at a time and do really well with that before you add in another. 
That's incredible advice. And this has been such a great conversation. Where can people find more from you, Cynthia? Thank you. So www.cynthiathurlow.com is my website. I have a podcast as well called Everyday Wellness, where I have the opportunity to connect with amazing health and wellness professionals. I'm also active on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I have a private Facebook group that's intermittent fasting focused. Um, You're obviously, and it's a free group. You're more than welcome to join us there. I always say it's a good place to kind of pick my brain. Um, Both my team and I are in there, but every once in a while, someone will throw out like a zinger question and my team's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm active on Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook and it's me, you know, my team kind of posts for me, but I'm the one interacting. So come check me out. We'll put those all below. Thank you again, Cynthia. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're so welcome. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Cynthia Thurlow. If you have any thoughts or feedback about this episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. And as always, just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening until this moment. It means the world to me. And I look forward to seeing you in the next one. Peace.